Welcome to TYT Interviews, Michael Shore here. We have a fascinating guest today. We're gonna to be talking, especially in this, what is now in the era of the, the Trump White House dealing with the press in the way that they do. I think it's a special privilege because of that to welcome Margot Ewan into our into our airwaves here on, on the Young Turks because we need to tell the story that that her group is advocating for. She is with reporters Without Borders. Margot Ewan, thank you for coming on to TYT. Thank you for having me. So let's get a little bit of background to what Reporters Without Borders is, how it started, and what, you know, what do you do every morning when you wake up and, and go into work? So uh, Reporters Without Borders was originally founded in France uh, over 30 years ago. So our uh, French name is Reporters Sans Frontières. So when we say RSF, um, it's kind of the international uh, abbreviation of our organization. Um, and we've been defending press freedom and access to information um, thanks to a network of local correspondents in 130 countries uh, that report violations of press freedom and access to information on the ground. And we use that information to advocate for the release of journalists journalists and uh, bloggers, citizen journalists, um, legal reform, um, improvements in investigations into the death of journalists, murders of journalists, um, combating impunity, uh, etc. So uh, we do work all over the world, but of course I'm advocacy and communications director for our North America office. I monitor press freedom in the United States, Canada, and the English speaking Caribbean. And I have to say that uh, recently uh, we have had a lot more focus on the United States in terms of press freedom violations because things are getting much worse, yeah, um, as I, you all know. I, yeah, and, and that's true. And give us, because we don't know this, we know what's going on in the moment, but the, the, the sort of the scope of the history of it isn't as well known to a lot of our viewers or me. Um, put into perspective what this White House is like and what is going on now uh, with other White <laughs> Houses and with other administrations. Uh, well, I would like to first start by uh, going back to the previous administration under President Obama, because it is worth noting that uh, things were not perfect prior to Trump taking office by no means at all. Um, this is largely due to the fact that the Obama administration prosecuted uh, more whistleblowers than any previous administration combined. Um, so much so that it was coined a, a war on whistleblowers. And I think that that is a pretty accurate term. Um, there was also a serious problem with transparency and access to information in the government that already existed prior to uh, the new administration coming in. Of course, what we're seeing now is a complete um, escalation of press freedom issues in the United States, just merely alone from the attitude of the new president and his White House team towards the press, the language that is used against the press for critical reporting, treating the press as fake news, as also dishonest, inaccurate, second rate, these are terms that have been used multiple times by Trump and by his aides for reporting that that doesn't seem to be in favor of the president. Of course, there's also the issue now with other members of the new government, like the Secretary of State Tillerson, who is not taking a press pool with him on an official visit to Asia, which is practically unheard of. And these types of limiting of access are much more pronounced than they were under the Obama administration, even though the foundation that the Obama administration laid was was not a perfect one. 
Okay, I, I want to get into some of the Obama things, <clears throat> but first I do want to start with the, the this White House and and the the idea of fake news. Uh, at you know, to me, just the, those two words are an assault on the press. Uh, and how then, when your group steps in, your advocates, you're not a journalist yourself. What what do you do? What how do you pick up that mantle and move forward with it? Well, I think what's important to do is to point out the numerous authoritarian regimes in the world that have used the term fake news in order to crack down on independent reporting, have used it to imprison professional journalists or citizen journalists and bloggers alike. I'm thinking of about a month ago, a case of for journalists in, um, or several journalists in Ivory Coast who were being detained for supposedly reporting a fake news story or distributing uh, false information about a corruption scandal locally with um, security forces. They were later released, but it is definitely not an isolated case. Um, the Saudi Arabian blogger Raif Badawi, uh, who is now doing a 10 year jail sentence uh, for starting a liberal Saudi network online, preaching tolerance um, and communicating information to the Saudi people. Uh, one of the charges on which he was convicted was disseminating false information. And so it's, it's very important that the United States, a liberal um, democracy, as we reveal ourselves to the world, doesn't give ideas to the authoritarian leaders of the world that are using this very term of disseminating false information to crack down on a free press that doesn't necessarily report on them in the way they would like to be reported on. All right, and it's not even just that we are showing them how to do it. It's we're almost learning from these authoritarian regimes in in some way. I mean, during the during the Trump campaign, I know because I was covering it. They put us in pens in the middle of every event. You were in a roped off area in a pen and it's a little different than a regular press pen because you're right in the middle and you had all his supporters screaming at you, um, you know, giving you the finger, telling you it was fake news, chanting toward you. It seemed, um, it seemed like a real, an ugly throwback to, to something that we'd moved past. And that's why I wanted to talk about those differences as well. So the pen, the the restriction of the press to a pen in itself is really not a new phenomenon. But I think what you're speaking of, of the hostility of the crowds at certain campaign events was so intense that before the Republican National Convention, many journalists went underwent a crisis training, hostile environment training to prepare for the worst during the Republican Convention. And that is is really shocking in the United States. I don't think that anybody would expect to require that kind of training to cover something like the Republican National Convention. And I definitely feel that um, the way that the president, President Trump is operating is definitely trying to reach the people, American people directly through his Twitter account. Um, He doesn't give speeches like prior heads of state have given. And he seems to try and take advantage of the discontent from the American people or a portion of the American people with the press to kind of feed this environment of bullying the press, labeling them the enemy, to take off attention from some of the the very good reporting that's going on, revealing different elements of his presidency, conflicts of interest, what have you. It's a tactic that I 
is very clear is being used to kind of feed off of this public sentiment, even though recent polling has shown that the majority of Americans still have more faith in the press than in the president himself. Right, and may that may that stay the same. Let's go back a little bit to the Obama administration because you were talking about that, and we should say that RSF again nonpartisan, only partisan on behalf of journalists and and on behalf of the press bloggers. And and I want to ask you a little bit about how that works when you're called in. But let's talk about the Obama administration. You mm-hmm. you said or alluded to this isn't a quote, but the fact that the the Obama administration was tougher on on whistleblowers than any other administration. Administration previously was unprecedented. How does that happen? And then what do you guys do? So uh, we were very involved, for example, in the case um, against uh, New York Times reporter James Risen, who was being subpoenaed to reveal his source um, in a lawsuit against um, what the government assumed, who the government assumed was his source, uh, Jeffrey Sterling, uh, former CIA operative, um, regarding the book that James Risen published called State of War on the CIA. Uh, and that incident, which dragged on for many, many months, uh, I think over a year, was very, very concerning for press freedom because you had a reporter who was being pressured to reveal his source or could face. Uh, contempt of court if he didn't reveal his source. Now, eventually, the government gave up on pursuing this, uh, but the person who was convicted, uh, Jeffrey Sterling, was only convicted on the basis of metadata, that is, the existence of emails and phone calls between him and James Risen, who he was in contact with for uh, another topic, as he claims. And that he, the fact that he was just basically convicted on circumstantial evidence, never proving that he actually revealed information to a journalist should be very concerning to every American citizen because it is a very low threshold to convict someone of espionage, which is a very serious crime. And Jeffrey Sterling is is now serving a three and a half year prison sentence, has always maintained his innocence. And, and RSF has considered him a whistleblower because he he actually expressed his concerns about a CIA operation to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Um, but he paid a very high price uh, for following legal channels and was convicted of giving this classified information to a journalist, but on on completely entirely circumstantial evidence. And so RSF then, it, what was their role and what was your role, but but the, the group's role in that case, for example? Where, where do you fit into the legal process? Do you fit into the PR process? How does it work? When, when do they pick up the phone and call RSF and say, hey, yeah, I have a situation? So uh, we always work with the journalist uh, first, deciding what they would like us to do. And obviously, if they have legal representation, we work with the attorney because there are certain things that we would prefer to be uh, publicly visible in terms of uh, public relations for uh, or public advocacy, I would say, for a specific journalist facing legal repercussions. Right. Um, in the case of Jeffrey Sterling, since the James Risen case was before I was with RSF, but I can tell you that with Jeffrey Sterling, um, it really was about elevating his story to the journalist community and connecting um, the, the plight of whistleblowers, those that follow legal proper legal channels, and those that actually uh, pay the price for a story that's later published by a journalist um, to make sure that he was not forgotten, to make sure that his story was told. And why this was a concern for the journalist community, that someone who was just in contact with 
a journalist could be in prison for it. Um, and so we did a lot of um, public events in Washington, D.C. We held uh, two press conferences. We brought in other uh, whistleblowers who had either been prosecuted or who had taken plea deals to kind of go over what their experiences were. Um, we had Cornell West come in and talk about uh, Jeffrey's case as a great ally. And we started a petition along with um, other organizations, partner organizations, because we're always stronger in numbers. And we we petitioned President Obama to, to pardon Jeffrey. We delivered the petition to the White House. And so we did a lot of awareness raising on his case because I think that it was not as widely told as the case of James Risen. And we thought that the American people needed to know how this could affect them and how this could affect uh, their access to information. Right. Uh, it, what if, you know, in, in a hypothetical, <clears throat> if uh, if Breitbart came to you, right, and a, a group that has that is not just journalism and but really advocacy journalism, position journalism, um, and and sometimes is challenged. I'm 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 sort of tiptoeing around my feelings about them. But but if they came to you and they said, hey, you know, we're having a problem because we're not getting access to uh, the Democratic National Committee uh, right now. What does RSF do in that case? Is that the kind of thing in which they would step in, even though it's you know the players, or, or am I giving a bad example? Well, uh, we haven't as yet been approached um, by Breitbart or another publication of that type regarding access concerns. And I would say um, just in general that all press should have access. Uh, it's not about choosing which ones get access over others. Right. Uh, that is very harmful to the First Amendment and not something that RSF would ever get behind. But uh, during the campaign trail, there was a Breitbart journalist who uh, you know, claimed that she was manhandled violently by uh, Corey Lewandowski. And we did put out a press release on that aspect, condemning that treatment that she underwent during a campaign event just for trying to ask a question. Yeah, that's the um, Michelle Fields so case. It's important right. to really uh, take a principled approach. Um, and like you said, we uh, we actually don't really focus so much on the on the quality of the journalism, but on the freedom of journalists and media to operate, to get access, to be able to cover uh, campaigns or a presidency uh, without restriction. Uh, understood, and, and I think you're talking about Michelle Fields was the reporter who was yes. who was thro thrown down by um, by Lewandowski during their or I don't know thrown down, but uh, grabbed and and manhandled as you said. Mm -hmm. um, then let's talk about internationally. Um, the the case that comes to mind is the Al Jazeera case, Peter Greston and and these um, and and his uh, colleagues who were imprisoned in Egypt. Uh, they were tried. RSF stepped in and, and really advocated in that case. And I think that's the kind of um, situation that a group like yours is needed. How does that work? And what are the results? What are the victories at RSF? So I think because we're an international organization known around the world for our work defending press freedom for over 30 years, we can help elevate the conversation on a specific case. Uh, bring it to an international scale and bring visibility to a case that may not be uh, as visible before we intervene. Um, and so 
we really pride ourselves on helping uh, journalists who are facing um, lawsuits that could put them in prison for doing their job. And it's something we do on a daily basis. Um, just to make a parallel, there are about uh, 10 journalists right now that are still facing criminal charges for their coverage of protests in North Dakota. Um, so that's in the United States. And the important thing is, is to make sure that those cases are, uh, those charges are dismissed, that those journalists are not uh, swept under the rug, that the fact that they're facing charges in the United States of America for covering a protest is not forgotten. But uh, it, this does happen internationally as well. Um, every time there is such a case of a journalist being prosecuted uh, for simply reporting, uh, no matter what the government in that country says the charges are, RSF uh, really will step up to the plate and make sure that uh, international organizations that we're working with, international bodies are aware of the case and that the pressure is on that government, on that legal system to withdraw charges and, and stop prosecuting journalists for doing their job. And, and yeah, I, I think just pointing towards that, when when in the office, when you're sitting around uh, having coffee and, and shooting the breeze, uh, when is the high five moment? What are some of the things that when, when RSF has a victory, what sort of paint a picture of what that is like? So um, I remember vividly when uh, Mohammed Fahmy, was cleared, who was also being charged with Peter Gresta. And uh, that was an amazing moment. Uh, any good news is excellent news. Another victory would, was when uh, Khadija Ismailova was released from prison, an investigative journalist in Azerbaijan. And uh, that was a collective effort with many, many international uh, American uh, press freedom and human rights organizations. And we were all just overjoyed that she was released. And it, it happened to be just before her birthday. So uh, there, are, there are a few moments where there are good news and when they happen, you have to really take a moment to celebrate them, but also use them as a motivation for any uh, upcoming uh, battles that you may, that, that you're involved in uh, to, to kind of just put it into perspective that it is possible advocacy does work. It is becoming harder uh, on the international stage at the moment, especially with the United States um, taking kind of a back seat to denouncing um, abuses against journalists and the press worldwide as they had done in the past. Uh, but I still think that it's, it's worth reminding oneself of uh, victories for uh, freedom of the press in general, because if you don't remind yourself of that, uh, it, it's very hard to move forward in the growing um, in the growing crackdown on press freedom that is occurring over the world. Yeah, well, that's just the disappointing thing, isn't it? With the United States that has been a leader in this sort of thing for so long and, and looks at other democracies, oligarchies, monarchies, and, and can't believe what is going on in other countries. Now we are not very dissimilar from, from a lot of what's going on there in the way that the, the, the press, you said the United States has taken a back seat, back seat because they seem to have put the press in the back seat or not at all in the case of Tillerson, who's not even putting them in the back of the plane. Um, and which is an amazing thing, isn't it? When you, when you think about the, a secretary of state traveling abroad with no press and saying, of course, that it's to save money when 
it doesn't, it actually helps them because the press pays to get on that plane. Mm -hmm. It actually mm -hmm. saves money to allow the press on the plane, which to me is the most egregious thing that came out of all of that. Well, maybe not the most, but it was fairly <laughs> egregious. Um, what, what do you do now? Like, what, do you go to the State Department? Do you get a group together? Um, how, do, how do you protest something like that? So um, protest of something occurring at the State Department, which I would say did not happen really frequently under the previous administration. We worked very closely with the State Department and several officials in the Department of Human Rights and Labor that were very effective and very cooperative about raising concerns of journalists being prosecuted or being restricted in their profession in the countries in which they traveled to and in public statements, but also in diplomacy and diplomatic meetings behind the scenes. Now I think we are always open to work with the State Department, but it seems that they are still transitioning to getting all of the employees instated at that higher level in terms of political appointees. But just to have the State Department not make its annual human rights statement is very concerning because it sends a message that we're no longer observing other countries how they respect human rights, and that includes freedom of the press at the very forefront. And that is alarming. Furthermore, the actions of our own government against our own press send us a specific message. When the Secretary of State travels to China without a press pool, what kind of message does that send to the Chinese government? China is the largest prison in the world for both professional journalists and bloggers. So it's just sending the the worst kind of message to a regime that cracks down heavily and severely on anyone who reports independent information that doesn't toe the communist party line if the if our own secretary of state doesn't show that we have a value of a free press a strong value for the free press in america and the first amendment is the absolute ideal that we that we hold ourselves to then it, honestly, it's 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 very alarming, and we should be very concerned. And in in response, are you seeing that news organizations are going to figure it out on their own? They're going to get over there. They're going to they're going to cover the hell out of this thing, or do do they cower in in, in situations like this where they don't have an option because they're not going to get the access once they get there? Well, I don't think that we can say that a press organization that can't afford to arrange their own travel that they've you know they've essentially already paid for pool access and the argument that it's saving money not having them along with the Secretary of State. I don't know where that argument comes from, but there are financial limitations to many outlets today, and I don't think we can impute that to journalists as a lack of courage or. Uh, hunger to cover this news. I think that the American press right now is is definitely been uh, invigorated by the attacks that it's facing. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that <laughs> we don't need uh, access to be improved, and we don't need our Secretary of State to take the journalists along with him on official trips. But uh, I would say that the press is is really fighting to have access and to cover the news aggressively. And I would say that they're really doing an excellent job. And are there 
sort of I say cases, but are there um, times that RSF has been asked to step in where they said, actually, no, I don't think that's for us? Uh, or can you give us an example, if not specifically, generally what that would be? Well, typically, we, like I said, we defend freedom of information. So that means that uh, citizen journalists uh, or bloggers that provide information and that act of providing information is directly tied into why, for example, they're imprisoned. Uh, that will be a case that RSF will take up, take on. Um, where it becomes a little bit trickier is uh, if someone wears multiple hats, if they're also an activist, uh, if they're, for example, uh, an independent writer, or uh, they also work in politics. It, it's it's really about finding the causal link between why someone is being prosecuted, why someone is being arrested, harassed, what have you, and their activity of reporting information or communicating news to the public. You are a superb advocate for your group, an ambassador for your group, and you're not a journalist. Why is why is a group that is representing journalists and representing leakers and representing sources and why have they I guess the question, and I'm forming this as I'm asking you, Margot, why have they decided to operate the way they have around this Trump White House is what I'm asking. We don't, I guess, why are we not hearing more about RSF in the press? Why do we not see so much about it constantly now? especially in light of the Trump White House and the way that they've treated the press. I'm frustrated, not with your group, obviously, just in general, that we're, that, that, that people are not more irate about this. And is your, I guess the, the real question, is your group, because they exist and, and, and everyone's so grateful that they do, are they responsible for making sure that we all know the story in some way? Um, well, yes, of course, we try to communicate about uh, these restrictions to the press uh, as much as we possibly can. Uh, that is the point of awareness raising and advocacy. Um, and I think there are a lot of American people who may not be aware. They, they maybe are aware that the press are being blocked access. And they might say, well, why does that interest me? And I think RSF, uh, our job is to really make those people understand that that it directly impacts them, that not having facts and not having truth reported can be a matter of life and death. And I'm talking about, for example, the Flint water crisis. If that wasn't, that story wasn't reported, there could be people drinking water that is deadly and they wouldn't even know it. Right. So it's just one example of why it's just so important at the, the very level of Average Joe American to know what's going on in their own country and their own community. Um, but I would also say that uh, awareness raising can be hard in the 24-hour news cycle, and when there's a, a vicious cycle of Trump saying something against the media, um, and then the media kind of saying, "Well, look, you know, we need access or we need this and that." Uh, I think that it's absolutely on the part of President Trump a tactic to. Uh, detract from all of the reporting that's going on on his ties to Russia or on his former uh, security advisor Flynn's uh, purported lobbying for Turkey, which is Turkey, as we all know, is a huge uh, 
a huge uh, press freedom crisis right now. Uh, so many journalists are in prison. It's, it's now become uh, the world's largest prison for professional journalists and our own representative uh, in Turkey is currently on trial for uh, terrorism charges because he participated in a solidarity campaign with a Kurdish daily. Uh, so there's there's a lot that we have to do um, to continue to to bring this issue to the American people. Um, but I have to say that's that's the day to day work of RSF in the United States is to is to communicate this to as many people as possible. Right, you're a kind of the wisest commenter in the comment section in a way, and you're the person who is reacting to or the group that's reacting to what's going on. There's so many stories that we could tell, but I think that I speak for a lot of people when I talk about how grateful I am. This is advocacy in a way, but you're advocating for a profession that I am in. So everyone is really grateful for the work that you're doing. If people want to find out a little bit more about RSF, Margot, how do they do that? So you can follow us on Twitter. Our English language Twitter account is RSF underscore EN. You can also visit our website, that's en.rsf.org. We have every press release that we publish on around the world on different topics. And you can even check by country. We also publish an annual ranking of 180 countries based on their press freedom record. Just to point out in terms of awareness building in the United States, the US ranks 41 out of 180 countries, which you might be surprised that it's so low. It's given amazing, that we're the country of the First Amendment. Yeah. And I just want to say that we will be coming out with our 2017 Press Freedom Index soon. So I would watch for that. Um, given that the events of 2016 were very volatile, uh, as we all know, during the campaign trail. So do you know, and you're not telling me what were we placed uh, at, uh, in the next one? I am not at liberty to say, uh, <laughs> okay. but I have to say that observing the trends, it's not looking very good. It's not looking very good. Yeah, no, no, I figured as much. Forty, I mean, 41 out of, uh, what, what was the number out of 100? 180. Yeah, out of 180 is astonishing in, in a country where the First Amendment, like you said, is so vital to how uh, we function and what our Constitution, Bill of Rights is. It's just incredible uh, that we're at 41, and I'm guessing uh, 41 is going to be our best in the last two years. Um, but I'm just looking, you know, kind of reading the tea leaves that you're uh, that you're sharing here. RSF is Reporteur sans frontières. Is that right? Pretty good. Reporteur sans frontières. Yeah, you got it. Well, I didn't get it really. That was much better. But you know, Peter Gabriel had a song called "Games Without Frontiers." When I was younger, I'd listen to that, and there was French frontiers. Is one of those French words you hear for a long time when you're uh, when you have no yes. idea what what it means. Um, you also had a chance, Bargo, by the way, to say Cote d'Ivoire, and you went with Ivory Coast. So I appreciate that. <laughs> um, uh, of course, R- my pleasure. Uh, RSF, a really important group. Look them up. RSF underscore en, which is their uh, at for Twitter. Uh, Margot Ewan, thanks for your time. Thanks for being on TYT Interviews. Thank you for having me.